could open your Bibles up to John chapter 19. It's where we're picking up in verse 28. I believe Matt will still be hitting verses 25 through 27 later, but we're kind of skipping that and then he'll circle back to it. But John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with the vinegar and put it on a hyssop and put it to his mouth. And when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Let's pray. Father, we we gather together and we take time to stop and pray once again. Lord, as we gather as your people and we move into reading your scripture, we're in the section where your son is dying. And it's in this time that we have the most respect for the work that you did. And so we pray, Jesus, that you would be glorified in this time and that you would be honored as we open your word. And Spirit, we invite you to speak to our souls and to convict our hearts. And we ask these things in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I must have been about seven or eight years old in Prineville, Oregon. And most years, my pops would would take us up into the woods and we would cut down trees for firewood, right? Just a couple of times, you just got to load up for the winter and, and get ready to heat the house. This particular year, though, my dad and his brothers went in on a log truck, a huge just log truck full of trees, and they pull into our pasture there and just dump that whole load, and it's a massive just load of logs in our, in our pasture, and my dad and his brothers spend the next handful of nights just every evening sawing and splitting, sawing and splitting, sawing and splitting. As you know how it kind of works, though, if you're, if you're a kid in that scenario, what eventually happens is your dad turns to you and says, it's your turn. <laughs> and that happened with us. My brother and I were standing there, and my pop said, boys, this pile of wood needs to be stacked tomorrow by the time I get home from work. It needs to be three rows wide, and it needs to be yay high. It needs to be along the fence to the pasture there, and, and it needs to be done by the time I get home. And so my brother and I, we went to work that next day, and man, we, we labored, and we toiled, and we worked, and we sweat, and we perspired, and we did it. The job was done, and I was pretty jacked. I was excited for my dad to get home to, to look at this job that we did, and, and he got home, and, and I'm sure we got, you know, like an attaboy or a good job kids or something like that. We did get to go to the Arctic Circle, which is like the McDonald's of the backcountry, you know, like... <laughs> But that was, that was our reward. But it was a job well done. And there's really something satisfying, right? Like that sense of accomplishment that you have when something has been completed, when, when something was hard and it is now finished, right? Maybe for you guys, that's, that's um, college degree or paying off debt that you labored and you sacrificed and you budgeted to get to, right? Or, or maybe it's opening that business or something. Like, you guys know the sense that you get, the, the satisfaction. 
That's really the, the heartbeat of these three verses. Actually, the Apostle John bookends these three verses with the single Greek word that represents that same thought, the Greek word tetelestai. It's found in verse 28 where, where it says, Jesus knowing that all things were now tetelestai, or accomplished. And then again in verse 30 it says, Jesus therefore, when he would received the vinegar, he said, tetelestai, or it is finished. So you have accomplished and it is finished, bookending this section, completed, completed. It was a job well done. And this, isn't, this wasn't an uncommon word in the Greek. You could really use it in, in four standard capacities. Um, one would be uh, if the high priest in the Day of Atonement, the one day of the year that he gets to go into the holy place, right, and he sprinkles the blood seven times on the mercy seat, the crowds that gathered in Jerusalem would wait outside and wait for the priest to, to step out if the priest was not, in fact, struck dead in the holy place, right? If the sin was not accepted. But if, he wa- if it was accepted, the priest could step out and utter, Te telestai, it is finished. Until next year. <laughs> an artist, you would think of an artist like, like Michelangelo and David, right? When he finishes a grand masterpiece, he could say, Te telestai, it is finished. A servant or a slave, when they were given a big project by their master, could, when they were finished, issue, utter, it's, it's finished, te telestai. If you have a huge debt that you have been paid, paying off, you could utter te telestai when it's paid off or otherwise paid in full. And so while it was a common word, it was not commonly spoken. As a matter of fact, this is the only two places in the entire New Testament where the word is used. And it's not because they didn't have opportunity to use it. Think of like Paul writing in, in 2 Timothy. He says, he says I, have ran the, I, have, I have fought the good faith fight. I have finished the race. That word finished, he, he uses a derivative of tetelestai, but he doesn't use the word itself. Again, in Galatians chapter 5, he's, he's asking the Galatian church, hey, don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Again, he uses a derivative, but he won't utter the word. Actually, the entire New Testament writers, they do not use it. They steer clear of it. That's, that's how much weight they placed in those sayings of Jesus, that, that word, it is finished from the cross. They wanted it to have meaning. They wanted it to have impact. But in these three verses, we really have two key words. One, te telestai, and there's a one in the middle of it, dipsal, which is the Greek for I thirst. And so you have three key words, or two key words in three verses, te telestai, dipsal, te telestai, or it is accomplished, I thirst, it is finished. It's noteworthy to uh, look how John orders his writing here. There's three hours that take place between verse 27 and 28. We know from other gospel writers that Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. So at 9 a.m., Jesus is crucified, and from 9 to noon, these three hours, Jesus utters three sayings, all three which are directed towards man. One, when he's hanging on that tree, the the crowds and the... um, 
the, the Roman guards, they begin to mock him. They begin to spit at him. They're hollering all kinds of things at him. And, and Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But as this is taking place, one of the thieves that he's crucified in between turns to him and he's like, hey, if, if you are who you say you are, get yourself off this cross and get us down too, man. Like, come on. And he's not saying that sincerely. He's saying that mocking Jesus. And the other, the other thief turns to him and begins to defend him, saying, hey, you and I, we've, we're getting our just reward. We're getting what we deserve, but this man is innocent. He's done nothing. And he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And as he looks out over that crowd, you, you see in the previous verses in John that he can look down and he sees his mother and he knows, like, I'm not going to be there to protect her and to care for her and to provide for her as she's a widow. And he looks at her and he says, woman, behold thy son. And he looks at the apostle John and he says, behold thy mother. And the scriptures tell us that John took her into his home from that period forward. But then there's, there's darkness that falls. As noon hits, the sky goes black. Pitch black, darkness falls. Jesus says nothing. So it's quiet from the cross, and it's dark from the skies, and he doesn't say a word until 3 o'clock hits. And he utters the words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He fulfills that, that psalm. And at that point, John picks back up. It's been about a three-hour gap in time, and John picks back up, and he says, after this, Jesus knows, knowing that all things were now accomplished. Jesus knows that everything is now accomplished? Well, what's, what's accomplished? He's still hanging on the cross. First thing, works. The works of Jesus were accomplished. Luke chapter 12, or excuse me, Luke chapter 2, at the ripe old age of 12, Jesus says to his mother, he says, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? <laughs> Even at the young age, he, he knows like, hey, 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 mom, I got stuff to do, and it pertains to my father. It's, it's not what is actually on your plate. <laughs> Say that to your mom at 12. Like, it doesn't go over real well, right? But Jesus, he's, he knows, like, I have something bigger that's, that's in front of me. I have something in store. John chapter 5, verse 17, he heals the man in, on the Sabbath day with the withered hand. You guys remember that story, right? He heals the man with the withered hand, and, and the priests, as they do, they, they get mad at him, right? Like, you can't, you can't do that, Jesus. Come on. And they get mad at him, but he has a response to them. He says, my father works hitherto, as do I, on the Sabbath day. I'm glad that, that, that God was working on the Sabbath day that day. You guys know in Genesis how um, God created the heavens and the earth and all the things were therein. He worked six days. He said, it is good, and then he rested on the seventh. So God rested on that Sabbath. but a handful of verses later, man falls, sin enters, and a new work begins. And God continues to work. I'm thankful that God keeps working. Um, I had a handful of text messages, phone, number, phone calls, and emails this weekend. 
and I um, filtered them. <laughs> I, I picked and choose, chose which ones I responded to and which ones I didn't based on what was actually important to me at the time. I'm sure the senders all felt like their texts were important, right? But I was like, nah, we'll do that on Monday. <laughs> God, not so. He does not sleep. He does not rest. He is available at every moment for anything that you have. Jesus said, my father works hitherto, and so do I. And so God continues to work. And I'm thankful that, that he does because he doesn't take a day off. He doesn't put his phone on airplane mode and say, well, I hope that Richard doesn't burn the place down tomorrow. <laughs> I hope that, hope that David doesn't, <laughs> doesn't mess up in a way that like I can't fix it on Monday. We'll see what it's like when I come back. But God is there and he's available. Every moment that you want to cry out to him, he is there. Later in that same chapter, Jesus says that uh, my father has given me works to finish. He says, all that my father has given me to do, that I do. But in John chapter 13, he says, Father, I have loved my people unto completion or finished. I have finished my love for these that you have given me. John 17, 4, he says, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus has finished the works. Second thing, he's, he's fulfilled the scriptures. You know, Luke 22, all things that were written must be fulfilled in me. All things that were written must be fulfilled in me. Lo, behold, I come to you in the volume of the book. If you think back over the Old Testament and over the scriptures, what man could there be quite like Jesus? Who could be Isaac, the sacrificed son? Who could be David, the victorious king? Who could be the wise Solomon? Who could be both Aaron of the, of the tribe of Levi and Melchizedek, the prince of peace? Who could fulfill conflict, conflicting prophecies to be victorious where all knees will bow before you, the world will be placed as your footstool, and yet be rejected of men and a man of sorrows? Who could be both the lamb that was slain and the goat, the scapegoat that was not? Who could be the dove that was dipped in blood and the priest that slayed it? Who could be the altar? Who could be the table of showbread? Who could be the candlestick and the mercy seat? Who could fulfill all types and pictures of the Old Testament with such perfection? Jesus. Over 300 direct prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. Prophecies about his birth, he had to be born in Bethlehem. He had to be born of a virgin, and yes, that, that prophecy means virgin, not young maid. There had to be a mass slaughter of children around his birth. He had to be forced into Egypt and called back out. 
Matthew says that he had to be a Nazarite, which would be the lowest of the low out of the most podunk of most podunk towns. He had to be forced or excommunicated out of Jerusalem up to the north country so that the scripture could be fulfilled that out of Galilee, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. He had to be a miracle worker. Deuteronomy 18.18, he had to be a miraculous teacher. And so all things written must be accomplished in me, Jesus said. And they were, and the scriptures were fulfilled. And what else was accomplished in Jesus? His death. We know that Jesus knew by what death he would die. Luke chapter 9, Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah show up, and it says that they spoke unto Jesus about the death that should be accomplished in Jerusalem. Luke again says that Jesus is, is filled with agony and says that about the, baptize, the baptism that he's about to be baptized with, and he is distressed until it is accomplished. Luke 18, he's going to Jerusalem to fulfill the prophecies that should be accomplished. At the end of Jesus' ministry, John 18.4, it says that he knew all things that would come upon him. So he knew at the end of his ministry, but in the beginning of his ministry, he told his disciples that he would be turned over to the Gentiles to be crucified. And so he knew at the end and he knew at the beginning, but get this, Acts chapter 2, verse 23 says that he knew before the foundations of the world during the divine counsel and foreknowledge of God. And so he knew what death he would die. He knew, Psalm 22, that he'd be forsaken by the Father. Psalm 22, again, that his hands and feet would be pierced. Psalm 22, again, that they would divide his clothes and cast lots for his robe. Psalm 69, that they would give him vinegar for his thirsts. Isaiah 50, that they would scourge him with 39 stripes. Isaiah 52, that they would beat his face until it was unrecognizable. Isaiah 53, that he would be numbered with the sinners. 53, again, that he would bear the sins of many, that God would lay the iniquities of all upon his shoulders, that he would be the ransom for the world. 28 specific prophecies while Jesus hung on the cross. He knew what death he would die. And he says it's all accomplished. But Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished, says that the scripture might be fulfilled. That next saying there, that's, that's interesting. You should take note of the care that Jesus gives for Scripture. Isaiah, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 18 says, Don't think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets, but I came to fulfill them. Assuredly, I say unto you that heaven and earth shall not pass away until every dot and, and tittle, <laughs> every jot and tittle, <laughs> is fulfilled. Jesus gives care for every piece of Scripture. Not one jot, not one tittle. Be wary of anyone or anything that causes you to second-guess Scripture. 
scripture is not confusing. It is not hard to read and understand. Yes, some take study. But Paul encourages you, right? Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He calls us to it. And if the scripture is God's primary way of communicating to man today, how much heed should we give to it? And yet, we listen to people that say, ah, the scriptures don't mean the same thing that they did that long ago. That's written by guys a long time ago. It's not applicable for us today. Why do you place so much weight in it? You know the cults do that. The cults, they adopt Christian lingo, like saved and faith and, and grace and the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They, they take that stuff, but you take them to the scriptures, and what do they say? Well, it's not really trustworthy. You can't really trust the English translation. It's been passed through so many different translators over time. It's so changed. Or you can't really understand that unless you listen to our guy. And the watchtower will show you the light. Oh, or if you, if you listen to Joseph Smith, he, he can really expound on that. This is what it really means. Brothers and sisters, we're without excuse. That stuff should not work on us. The amount of information that we have at the touch of our fingers. I read a sermon this weekend from 1741. I read it line by line, word by word. We have access to stuff, and it gives us no excuse to be fools when it comes to the Scriptures. And Jesus cares about the Scriptures. Lo, I come in the volume of the book. Don't be like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, where they had to be rebuked as Jesus walked them through the entire law and the prophets and says, guys, you should know this stuff. And so as he, as he knows and understands that all things are now fulfilled, his, his, his works and the scriptures are fulfilled and his death is done, he recognizes one more scripture needs to be fulfilled. Psalm 69 verse 21 says, They gave me vinegar for my thirst. And so knowing this and knowing that he's going to spur it on, he cries out, I thirst. For he hadn't yet drunk of the vinegar. And this is the saying from the cross that sounds most like a complaint. I thirst. And most, most commentators think that this is a, a sure proof of his humanity, which it is, for absolutely he did thirst. The guy had been up for about 34 hours, right? If he got up at about 6 a.m. the day before, he's been up for about 34 hours straight. He's walked miles on his feet. He's had his face smashed until it's unrecognizable. He's had a crown of thorns pounded upon his head. As Matt mentioned last week, he carried that crossbeam out of the city up the hill of Golgotha. He has been beaten 39 lashes with the cat of nine tails that would expose the bones, sometimes dislocating the ribs. He would lose bodily fluids and blood at a rate that we can't imagine, and the guy thirst. 
he was thirsty. It was absolutely a sign of his humanity. And believers, I ask you in this room today, who, who resonates with that? Who's sitting here today and says, man, I'm thirsty. The perils of this life have gotten to me. My kids or my marriage or my job or my health or their health, it's getting there. My relationships are, I just thirst. Can I get a break? John chapter 7, perhaps you guys remember the story. It was a handful of months ago we went through it, but um, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's, he's celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. Fantastic feast. It's a celebration. It's, it's that they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, but now they're in the promised land, and it's, it's a fun time. It's a celebration. It's a, it's a party. And as he's there, what happens is there's a processional that the priests would lead every day as they would, they would travel from the Temple Mount to the Pool of Siloam, and they'd fill up these golden pitchers while waving these palm branches, right? The waving of the palm branches was a sign that, like, we're there, we've arrived, we've got there. So they've got these pitchers full of water because we don't have to get water from the rock anymore. We're in the promised land, and they, they follow this processional back up to the Temple Mount, and they pour it out, and they wave the palm branches, and it's a celebration. The eighth day, however, though, it's called the great day of the feast, they would do the same thing. The processional leads the, leaves the Temple Mount, and it travels to the Pool of Siloam, but instead of filling up their golden pitchers, they leave them empty. And they travel back up to the Temple Mount with these empty pitchers, and instead of waving the palm branches around, they beat the ground. They beat the ground so that dust comes up. And as they're doing that, they pour out these empty pitchers onto dry ground with dust rising up. And they read Isaiah 44, verses 2 through 4. He says, Thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which helped thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and Jeshurun, who, I'm, who, who I have chosen. For I will pour water upon him who is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring, and they shall spring up among us as the grass, as the willows that by the water courses. They read this and they recognize it as a messianic prophecy. So after they read this about the, the waters being poured out upon the thirsty ground and the floods flowing through and the blessings on our offspring, they pray. And they pray two things. They pray one, they bow their head in silence, and they pray, we're no longer in the desert, and so we don't have to draw water from the rock, but we do have to pray for the latter rain. We do still have to pray for the blessings of God. And number two, they recognize it as messianic. They say not just we pray for the latter rains, but we pray for his reign. That is the Messiah. They say we're dry and we're thirsty. We're in the promised land, but we're still lacking. Messiah, deliver us. And John chapter 7 tells us that in the middle of this processional with the dust rising and the empty waters being poured out and the prophecy of, of waters flowing and the blessings pouring out, Jesus stands up and it says that he cries with a loud voice, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. 
He that believes on me, as the scriptures say, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. It was his cry as the Messiah. And I say, are you thirsty? And if you are, go to Jesus. His spirit wants to comfort you. Are you thirsty? For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows your thirst. He can be with you in the middle of it, and he will bring water through it. But this wasn't just a complaint, I believe. I believe it was much more than that. I believe it was a declaration. I thirst! When I was in uh, middle school and high school, I ran track. I couldn't compete with the sprinters, and so I ran distance. I think that that's what distance runners are, right? Like they can't run, they can't actually run fast, so they just run a long time. <laughs> that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, but I couldn't compete with the sprinters, so I ran the 3,000. 3,000, seven and a half laps around the track. Um, and we just ran, like I could run for a long time, so I did the distance. And, and it's funny, like you would start and you'd run. And you're counting your steps and you're breathing, you're focused on it, but you get to like lap three or four and you're just tired. You're so, everybody's tired and you're just running like we still have to finish this, so we're going to keep going. But something funny happens every single race. Every single race. As, you, as the first person reaches um, the start of their final lap, this bell rings. Have you guys heard it at the races? Ding, 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 ding. The first person crosses. The second that happens, it like a, it's a light that switches, right? The race gets much more intense. All of a sudden, your pace starts picking up. Your breathing gets a little more in tune. Your focus lasers in. And as you round that last corner and you're coming in the final, the home stretch, right? That last hundred, it's a dead sprint. You've been running for almost two miles, and yet you can, you're going to dead sprint, like, That same language is used in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, We have patiently run the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. And as Jesus hangs on this tree, something changes. Approximately 12 to 15 hours earlier, he's in the garden and he's sweating great drops of blood and he prays three times, right? What does he pray? Father, let this cup pass. Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass. Father, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but thy will be done. And now he's crying out, I thirst. Hebrews 2.9 says that he needed to taste death by death for all man that they might be saved through him. And he cries out, I thirst. He says, I want to taste. I don't want just a little bit. I want the whole thing. 
Not a drop can fall from this cup until I've drunk of the wrath of God to its full. Spurgeon said it like this. While he hangs there in mortal conflict with sin and Satan, his heart is broken. His limbs are dislocated. Heaven fails him, for the sun is veiled in darkness. Earth forsakes him, for his disciples forsook him and fled. He looks everywhere, and there is none to help. He casts his eye around, and there is no man that can share his toil. He treads the winepress alone, and of the people there is none with him. On, on he goes, steadily determined to drink the last dreg of that cup, which must not pass from him if his father's will be done. And so he cries out, I thirst. There's one more scripture, and I'm not letting a jot or tittle fall, and I want the wrath of God for the joy that's set before me. I can see it, and my eyes are focused. I'm intent to see that finish line through. Father, poured out. Let me drink. And as he takes that wine in verse 28, knowing that all, or 29, knowing that all things were accomplished, they filled that sponge with vinegar, vinegar. They put it on the hyssop branch, and Jesus took it. And as he took it, he cried out, Te telestai. It is finished. But what is finished? If we've already hit it, the, the scriptures were finished or accomplished, and the works were accomplished, and his death is accomplished. What's left to be finished? Perhaps you've heard of the old Puritan preacher from the 1700s. His name is Jonathan Edwards. So sick and tired. of churchgoers that show up to church and worship on a Sunday and don't live a life that represents Christ. So sick and tired of the flippant attitude that non-believers had towards God and towards sin, he pens possibly his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That's a fantastic title. <laughs> Like, that needs to be like an old Western with like Clint Eastwood, right? Like, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And as fantastic as the title is, the sermon is really much better. For in it, he, he lays out about the horrors of hell and the dangers of sin and the terror of being lost. And truly, the thought of being lost should be a terror. Have you ever considered the language that the New Testament uses when it, when it talks, to, talks about hell or eternal judgment? Outer darkness. Have you ever been in a place that is so black, so dark, that, that you lose your sense of navigation, that up becomes down and down becomes up, and you, you don't understand it? How would you be there eternally? 
What about the place of constant weeping and wailing? Have you ever heard a cry out in terror? Can you imagine being like that eternally? Hearing the screams of terror and being engaged in that continually for eternity. What about the weeping part? Have you ever cried or been with someone that has been been weeping uncontrollably? Without consolation? You'd be like that for eternity? What about the gnashing of teeth? Right? This is one that I, I grind my teeth at night. But what about like the gnashing of teeth? Like that full just, have you ever been there where it's just, I had kidney stones one time and I went to the hospital and, and uh, they were taking my temperature and I was sitting in a wheelchair like rocking back and forth, right? Because it, it hurt. And, um, or at least I thought it hurt. Maybe some of you guys are tougher than me, but I'm rocking back and, t- and, and they've got a thermometer in my mouth and the, and the guy keeps saying, close your mouth. I'm like, it is closed. It's closed. He's like, no, close your mouth. It's closed. So he couldn't even take my temperature because it hurts so bad. And, and can you imagine grinding your teeth for all of eternity in that kind of pain where you just grind? Or because of anger where you're so full of anger, then anger and frustration that you just grind for all of eternity, the gnashing of teeth. What about where the worm eats continually? Can you imagine being in a state of constant decomposition where the worm continues to decompose you and yet you don't decompose? And you're conscious of that? Consider that language for a moment. Truly, John Edwards was right to warn people against that. That's the language that Jesus utilizes. And I ask you, are you lost? Are you under the wrath of God? Listen to this, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold truth and unrighteousness. Isaiah 59.2, it's your iniquities that have separated between you and God. It's your sins that he has held his face from you that he will not hear. John 3.16, he that believes not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Ezekiel 25.17, and I will execute great vengeance upon them with furious rebukes. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I have laid my vengeance upon them. Isaiah 26, 21, for, the Lord, for behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquities. The earth shall not disclose her blood and shall no more cover her stains. Nahum 1, 2, God is jealous and the Lord revenges. The Lord revenges and it's furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reverses, reserves wrath for his enemies. Psalm 7, 11, God judges the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. Romans 2, 5, but after the hardness and impotentness of their heart treasures up thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. 
Colossians 3.6, because of these, the wrath of God abides on the children of disobedience. Ephesians 5.3-6, but fornication, all uncleanliness or covetousness, let this not be named among you as become saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which is not convenient, but rather of giving of thanks. For you know that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things, the wrath of God abides on the children of disobedience. The wrath of God abides. Consider for a second the Ten Commandments. Right? You guys ever see like those Ray Comfort videos? Like they're, they're funny. They're a little cheesy, but they're kind of funny. But he walks people through the Ten Commandments, and it's like, well, have you ever lied? And they're like, well, yeah. So you're a liar. Okay. Have you ever looked at a woman or a man with lust in your heart? Well, I, so you're an adulterer. Have you ever stolen? So you're a thief. Have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? So you're a blasphemer. Right? And he can go down the list. And basically, all of us, have you ever coveted any of your neighbor's stuff? I've seen a few cars and boats I wanted. Like, oh, so, you, so you're a coveter. Okay. The wrath of God abides on the children of disobedience. And Colossians chapter 2 uses this kind of language in a legal form. It says, there's ordinances that are written against you. Ordinances, laws that you have broken, written against you. But thankfully, when Jesus cries out, it is finished, he says, the wrath of God has been fulfilled because Colossians 2 goes on in verse 14 says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that are against us, which were contrary to us, and took them out of the way and nailed it to the cross. So picture, if you would, the hands of Jesus stretched out on that tree, and as that nail pierces through, it goes through that, and it goes through those written ordinances against us, and as the blood flows, it blots it out. Though your sins be white as scarlet, a red as scarlet, he has washed you white as snow. The handwritten ordinances that are against us, that are contrary to us, are nailed to the cross of Calvary. Isaiah 53, 4 and 6 says, Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten from God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53:10 Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise the son. He has put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Do you know that it pleased the father to bruise the son? And it pleased the son to pursue the cross because there was joy set before him because he looked at us and he said, "I have you 
in my future. It pleased the father to bruise the son. And the son saw the joy that was set before him. Romans 5, 8, and 9, but God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? For God has not destined us unto wrath, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, but but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 2.2, he is the propitiation, the satisfaction, if you would, the fulfillment of the wrath of God. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. It is finished. The wrath of God has been fulfilled. And so as we enter back into worship right now, perhaps you resonate more with that wrath side, maybe Isaiah 59.2, where it says it was your iniquities that have created separation. And it's because of your sins that God has had to turn his face. God did turn his face. But it was for the three hours between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when he turned his face from his son. And he turned his face from his son so that he won't have to turn his face from you. And we have the opportunity right now to celebrate that as as we enter back into worship, the communion tables will be open. And we'll grab the bread and we'll dip it in the wine and we'll take it together as a family after this next song. But I want you to consider in that place if you felt separated from Jesus, all you have to do is turn back to Him. Because God's face was turned from Jesus. And we could come boldly before the throne to accept grace and mercy in time of need. And that's what this time is for. So take these next moments as we grab the bread and the cup to consider where you're at, where your heart is. And come back to Jesus. As soon as this next song goes, we'll uh, take communion together.